1 Kings chapter 6, if you'll join me there as we continue our study through 1 Kings together. Last time we left off together, we saw there at the end of chapter 5 in 1 Kings that Solomon at this point has gone through the process of making preparations for the building of the temple. In fact, it tells us how Solomon had really contracted, remember, the help of Hiram, king of Tyre, and his servants, and how they were bringing down uh, wood from the forests of Lebanon there. It told us that they were floating down this wood from Lebanon by the sea uh, there to the place of where the temple would be built, and he contracted the craftsmen from the area of Tyre, as well as an incredible workforce. We saw that thousands and thousands had been raised as a labor force. Chapter 5, verse 13 said that King Solomon raised up a labor force of 30,000 men, uh, sent these, remember, a thousand a month in shifts. They were sort of rotating, going up to the area of Lebanon there and helping out and preparing this wood and bringing it down, as well as the fact that there were, it says, verse 15, 70,000 carrying burdens, 80,000 that were quarrying stones. So again, I mean, we're talking upwards to 150 plus thousand laborers plus another 3,000 foremen who were involved. And this was just in the process initially of making the preparations for the building of this temple. Remember that God had actually given the parameters and the blueprints of how this temple was to be built and is designed. The Bible tells us that was actually given to David by the Spirit of the Lord that God gave revelation to David exactly how this temple was to be built. But though God gave that vision to David and the design and how it was to be built, uh, God had actually ordained and selected Solomon to be the one to carry out the process of the building of the temple. So Solomon now having come to the throne, recognizing this is God's calling, there's been a time of preparation. He's now getting the materials together. He's prefabbing, if you would, all of the supplies and getting things together. It tells us at the end of chapter 5 there, the last phrase of it we saw, it says, and they prepared the timber and the stones to build the temple. And chapter 6, verse 1 picks up, and it came to pass in the 480th year after the children of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt. So the Bible wants us to have a, a frame of reference of when the temple was built, almost uh, five centuries after the time when God delivered the children of Israel out of their bondage in Egypt. That's where we're at now at this point historically. And it was in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel. Now that tells us something, that if Solomon began rather quickly to start making preparations to build the temple, embracing God's calling to do this, uh, that it was a process, a few years. Take notice, if this is the fourth year, it says here in the fourth year of his reign, that verse 1 says that in the second month that he began to build the house of the Lord, well, that tells us that there were a few years involved in the preparation process before he began the building process or before he actually began this work of the Lord. And again, it just goes to show us that there is indeed at times a purpose and a reason for preparation. Uh, and certainly it doesn't mean necessarily that preparation has to be longer than necessary, but that there is a God-given 
time and intention in certain situations to have a season of preparation that's necessary. It took them a matter of a few years to get all the stones and the timber and the workers and everything coordinated before they actually began and entered into the work itself. And in some ways, again, we look at these things, we want to take them for our own lives. We talked about last time that as we look at the temple of God, the actual physical structure, the permanent temple building that Solomon built as the transition from the tabernacle, the tent-like worship structure to the temple, uh, that certainly this was a literal thing that took place. It was a literal house of worship that God created in that day for the people of Israel. But we know as well as we look at this, wanting to see God's word and how it applies to all of our lives, that there are a number of things that the temple of God actually illustrates from a New Testament perspective. For example, the temple of God illustrates at least three different things we know. First of all, in John 2, remember Jesus on one occasion when he was speaking to the religious leaders, he said to them, he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And the Bible tells us this Jesus was speaking about his body. In other words, that's exactly what happened. They destroyed the physical body of Jesus and three days later, he rose back from the dead bodily in his resurrection. So again, in one way, when we look at the temple, certainly it is to have pictures, analogies that we can see within it to speak of the person of Christ. We talked about as well that last time, particularly the two things we brought up in our study, was that it also, the temple illustrates as well, the church collectively or, or believers on a, on a collective or corporate level. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 3, Ephesians chapter 2, passages like that, that we are a bunch of living stones or individuals who collectively coming together make up a dwelling place for God, where God by his presence dwells among his people and that we are now the the temple of the lord god's people individual christians as we come together our lives are like living stones jesus being the chief cornerstone and the presence of god dwells among us collectively as the temple of god and therefore that should be reverenced and respected the church the body of christ and then first corinthians 6 as well as other places the bible indicates clearly and directly that our physical bodies individually as Christians, are temples of the Lord, that God's spirit dwells within us and that our body is actually a temple of the Lord. And so we should exercise our life in way recognizing that our body is a temple of the presence of the living God if we know the Lord. So again, as we look at these things, there was that time of preparation, the end of chapter five, and now this time of beginning to build the house of the Lord and start the work, uh, it, it reminds us of the way God works in our life. And sometimes there needs to be a, a time of preparation and we shouldn't neglect that. We shouldn't try and shortcut that. We should accept and embrace that sometimes adequate preparation, a season of preparation is a good thing. And, and, and if they didn't prepare adequately, they wouldn't have built very efficiently. And the work of the Lord would have suffered. And sometimes the work of the Lord suffers. Uh, I've seen more than once because sometimes somebody too soon enters into the work and they haven't adequately been prepared. And there's nothing worse than when someone steps into the work of God and they don't have a character that's prepared in advance before they begin doing the Lord's work. 
uh, and God begins to work through their life and they haven't been adequately prepared personally in their spiritual life and their heart has no depth, no character and pride and all kinds of unhealthy things can begin to really uh, cause things to fall apart in the work of the Lord. So uh, it is important. There is a time and a season for every purpose under heaven and sometimes preparation is a part of that. Remember Jesus, the Bible tells us, out in the wilderness, time of preparation before he began his public ministry. David, for years and years before he became the king of Israel, was in a season of a wilderness experience and being prepared and God shaping his character. So the preparations have taken place and now it is time to begin. Chapter 6 and 7 record the actual construction process itself. But the key thing being as well, that preparation is, is one thing, but then there comes a certain time, as I said at the end last time, when you got to begin. And you can't stay in preparation mode forever. There comes a time where after you have been prepared, it's time to get started. And it's time to begin and to step into things. And sometimes that can be a mistake. We, we keep thinking, well, I'm not prepared yet. I'm not prepared yet. And we can fall on that side too. I need a little more preparation. I'm not prepared enough. And sometimes God says, that's as prepared as you're going to be. You're going to depend upon the grace of God and the power of my spirit. You need to get going. You need to begin now. You need to enter into the work. And that's important. So they now began to build the house of the Lord. And this drawing and rendering that I tried to give to you in your handout, hopefully it kind of gives you as we go through this a little bit of a visual idea. As I said, I can't guarantee the accuracy of these. These are different artist renderings of what's described in these chapters. But hopefully it will help you kind of visually picture in your mind to some degree what's being described in this uh, passage of scripture here. A lot of construction terms and very tedious. So uh, try and uh, hang in there as we go through this. Chapter 6 verse 2 then tells us now the house which King Solomon built for the Lord. Its length was 60 cubits. It's width 20 and its height 30 cubits. Now, typically the ancient measurement of a cubit, most believe, was typically referred to as from the uh, top of your middle finger there down to your elbow, which is about a, a roughly an 18-inch span for most people. So whenever you read a cubit in the Bible, you can say it's about 18 inches or about one and a half feet. So whenever you read a dimension of cubits, you can sort of multiply it times 1.5 in feet so what's being described here the overall temple structure the building itself it tells us verse 2 that its length was 60 cubits or 90 feet the width of the temple it says was 20 cubits or that would be 30 feet and its height was 30 cubits so that's 45 foot high so you basically have a structure that's 90 foot long 30 foot wide and about 45 foot high because it seems to have sort of multiple stories we'll, we'll see that so again n not a massive building uh, not a huge building keep in mind again as well that unlike today when we build you know gathering places for God's people you know church buildings and so forth uh, we assemble on the inside and we worship the Lord in that day the general congregation keep in mind there were you know millions of people in the nation of Israel they didn't all cram into the tiny little structure that was 90 foot by 30 foot by 45 foot nor they didn't have to you know sign up hey what week out of the year can I go to church because that would be way too small for all of them to fit within it the, the temple was a dwelling place for God's presence only the priests themselves went into the temple itself and did ministry activities the people gathered outside in the courtyard areas 
when they came for worship. So again, not a massive building, but a glorious building we're going to see in regards to what it represented of just the glory of God. And again, a lot of the things of the temple were meant to be representative of the ultimate temple, the eternal temple heaven itself that's why Moses remember was instructed when he built the tabernacle even the tent structure to do it exactly according to God's design because it was intended to be a reflection of the eternal tabernacle or the internal temple or dwelling place of God himself it was a reflection of those things so God wanted it built a certain way verse 3 says the vestibule in front of the sanctuary of the house was 20 cubits long about 30 foot long across the width of the house and the width of the vestibule extended 10 cubits from the front of the house or about 15 foot out so what that's kind of describing is sort of like a porch like area uh, off of the temple structure itself if you notice kind of if you look at sort of the the top two drawings one shows it with just a small wall kind of like a knee wall not as wide as the entire temple the other one actually shows it more of an enclosed porch area uh, again these are artist renderings but it's kind of a a, a gathering place a, a porch like area before you actually entered into the sanctuary space of the temple building itself Verse 4 says, and he made for the house windows with beveled frames, and that was seen to be the purpose of letting in some, some natural light. And again, as we look at these things, again, this is the beautiful thing that, you know, that, that light would have access into the temple, into God's house, and God certainly wants his house to be a place where, where light uh, is accessible, where people can find light. Uh, and find direction from the Lord. Verse 5, against the wall of the temple, he then built chambers all around against the walls of the temple, all around the sanctuary and the inner sanctuary. Thus he made side chambers all around it. The lowest chamber was five cubits or about seven and a half foot wide. The middle chamber was then about nine foot wide. And then the third was seven cubits or about ten and a half foot wide. So it gradually got wider as it went up, almost sort of like, a, like an upside down triangle is what's being described, a little bit wider as it went up towards the top. These three levels or three floors of side chambers, they were made on narrow ledges around the outside of the temple so that the support beams could not be fastened to the walls of the temple. So somehow this was built, these side chambers or side rooms in such a way where they weren't dependent upon the structure of the temple itself and these side chambers three stories of side chambers we're not 100% certain most likely they were probably used for storage spaces maybe for wood for the altar uh, many believe that you know that offerings were stored in them some of the treasuries that brought into the house of God you know wealth and gold and silver that these were chambers that the priests would use perhaps to change into their garments as they did their ministries and so forth but there were these side chambers that went all along both sides of the temple three stories high that were used uh, in this process. And anybody who's ever built a home or a church before knows you can never have enough storage space, right? Uh, so that's probably why there was a whole lot of these. Again, God's, uh, God's certainly very functional in the way that he does things, and certainly they probably put good use to all those side chambers around the building. Verse 7 says, In the temple when it was being built, here's an interesting insight the Bible gives us, the temple as it was being built, verse 7, was built with stone that was finished at the quarry so that no hammer or chisel or any iron tool was heard in the temple while it was being built. So, 
again, even to this day, if you go over in Israel and you see some of the, the large stones, not from this temple itself, I mean, you see some of these stones that were used. I mean, this, these temples that were built, I mean, there's an archaeological wonder how they even moved these massive, massive stones. I mean, literally some like 20 foot long and, you know, 10, 15 foot high. I mean, these are massive stones that they were fitting together, limestones, in building this temple. And here the Bible tells us that when they built the temple, there was no sound at the construction site of chiseling or hammering the stones or no tools being used on them, that they were prefabbed, each stone was prefabbed off-site somewhere else in the quarry and each one was shaped and fitted and then it was brought to the temple and it was fit right into the place where it belonged. Uh, and again, some of these stones, I mean, you can't even get a knife blade between these things. I mean, the, the capacity that they had to be able to, you know, split stone and modify it and chisel it and make it exact as it was, again, no laser levels and, you know, all this, you know, not pneumatic tools. I mean, this is all by hand. They're doing this with a labor force in such a way where they're off-site prefabricating and then bringing it back. And it had to be done in such a way where when it came to the construction site, if you were a, you know, half inch off, you couldn't say, hey, you know, uh, Harry, can you go get us a chisel? We got to, you got to knock about a half inch off of this so that it fits or it's not going to work that wasn't acceptable it had to be perfectly fit off-site and then just quietly put into its place to serve its function where it was so again this amazing way that they did this and of course as we look at this i think as as we picture what's being described there it's a beautiful analogy of how each stone was prefabbed to fit into its place and prepared quietly in a private personal location and then brought to fit in where it belonged, it's a beautiful picture of exactly, really, how God works in our lives. The Bible says in 1 Peter 2 that we are living stones fitted together. And a lot of, in fact, I would go so far as to say the majority of all of the shaping and the chiseling and the preparing of who we are and what we are, most of that doesn't get done when we're together like this collectively. It gets done in the quiet, personal, private places of mundane, everyday life as you live with your family and you function in your job and you have your personal quiet time and you, you go through your own stresses and personal challenges and life you know, calamities and all the things that we're going through and the difficulties of living in the unsaved world. And that's the place in, in our personal life and in our private life where God's shaping us. And he's chiseling and he's, he's cutting things out of our lives and he's knocking off rough edges and he's, and he's shaping and molding and preparing us so that we fit into the body of Christ exactly where we're supposed to fit at in the right place as we connect together with people. And I think as well, it's, it's certainly also a, a really good analogy and picture as well of kind of what happens from the eternal perspective. You may feel like, and sometimes we do, like your whole life, it just feels like to some degree you're under the hammer <laughs> while you're here. And it just feels like, man, I just feel like that, you know, the Lord's always knocking rough edges off me and using people and situations and circumstances and that I'm always being molded and shaped. And uh, listen, right, that's part of this life. 
in, in this life here, God is preparing us and shaping us, and this prepares us for the house of the Lord eternally so that we fit in in heaven. And so here God's molding and shaping and by his spirit and through circumstances and situations, he's molding and shaping us into the image of Christ so that when we enter into the true temple of God, the house of the Lord, we fit into heaven perfectly because we've repaired through all God's done in the temporal experience to get us ready to fit in perfectly into the eternal house of God when we get there. So verse eight says the doorway then for that middle story was on the right side or the eastern side of the temple. And notice it went up by stairs to the middle story from the middle to the third. So you notice the idea is kind of there would be stairs ascending uh, as were needed. Verse 9, so he built the temple and he finished it and he paneled the temple with beams and boards of cedar. So limestone, most likely outwardly, on the interior, uh, beautiful cedar paneling so that you didn't see the stones. We'll read later on here. It was all paneled with cedar on the inside, cedar boards. And he built the side chambers against the entire temple, each five cubits high, and they were attached to the temple with cedar beams. And then verse 11 says, the word of the Lord came to Solomon. So at this point, God speaks to Solomon. He receives a, a, a prophetic word from the Lord concerning this temple, the Lord said, which you are building. If you walk in my statutes, execute my judgments, keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will perform my word with you, which I spoke to your father, David. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. So God makes this promise to Solomon in the midst of the building, in the midst of doing what God asked him to do, which is build the temple. So he's now engaged in God's calling for his life. He's now entering into and performing the thing that God has asked him to do. And as he's walking in obedience, he hears God's voice. As he's doing what God's asked him to do and he's living out what God has asked of him, while he's doing what God wants, he hears God speak to him. And so often this is a pattern in our lives. You know, we, we wonder when God's going to speak to us next. Well, usually God's going to speak to us next when we do the next thing that God asks us to do. And as we do what God asks us to do, then God gives us more information. And God speaks to us. And now here, as Solomon enters into the work, God speaks to him. He gives him, notice it's a conditional promise. Solomon, he says, if you walk in my ways, execute my judgments, you obey my word. If you do these things, then he says, and I will perform my word and my promises to you. But it was conditional because there were times when Israel did not obey God's word. And so God's giving them a conditional promise that he would perform his word according to their obedience and faithfulness to the word of God. And I love verse 13. He says, and I will dwell among the children of Israel and not forsake my people Israel. Now, I have that circled in my Bible there and I wrote next to it, God's desire. Because that there is an expression of God telling us what God's desire is. That's the heart of God right there. God wants to dwell with his people. He doesn't want to be aloof and distant and detached he doesn't want to say, hey, you know, gather at the house of the Lord and, um, you know, do some religious stuff and mention my name once in a while uh, and, and you know, read my book uh, and some people sing a song or two about me. Uh, God says, no, I want to look at it, dwell among my people and never forsake them. God likes to be in the presence of his people. 
The Bible tells us that God inhabits the praises of his people. Jesus said, whenever two or three gather on my name, I am there in the midst. And again, this is the heart of God. God has always, throughout human history, always desired to dwell together with his people. From Adam in the Garden of Eden, what did God do? He walked closely together with Adam in fellowship in the cool of the day. And whether it's throughout the days of Moses or here as Solomon, it has always been the heart of God to be in the midst of his people. God wants relationship. He wants fellowship. And this is so important because when we assemble as God's people, we should, in faith, have a consciousness of the presence of God. I don't want to just gather for, and almost sometimes it bothers me the term we use, you know, church services. I don't want to, you know, gather and just kind of go through a religious routine. Okay, we're going to you know, sing a few songs about God. We're going to read God's book. We're going to do a couple things. To co- I, I want to meet with God. I want to know God is in our midst and, and, and God's presence is among us and I want to experience the presence of God. I want to be sound in my doctrine and it's not all about experiences, but listen to the other side of that. I want to experience God in a genuine way. I want to know God's in our midst and I sense his presence and his love and his power at work in my life and in your life and that we're truly having a meeting with God that we're meeting together with him because he's in the presence of his people. And I think as his people, we need to be sensitive. You know, Jacob, I love that phrase that he makes on one occasion where he's there out in the middle of the wilderness. Remember, he makes that statement, Jacob, he says, surely God was in this place and I didn't know it. And I wonder how many times Christians go in and out of churches and surely God was in that place and they didn't even know it because they were sitting there and muttering the songs and thinking about what they had to do or playing on their phone or you know all the things that they're there bodily lots of people are in church services bodily but god wants us to to truly be engaged and to realize i mean in, in the same way if you were in somebody's presence and you were spending time with them and you basically were just ignoring them and they're talking to you and you're you know, looking everywhere else and and just totally disengaged i mean it'd be somewhat offensive But yet, honestly, when we're in the house of God with the people of God, the Bible says his presence is with us. The presence of the living God is with us. Are we ignoring God? Are we kind of disacknowledging that he is in our midst? Or are we truly embracing his presence and wanting to experience him and meet with him? It's just a beautiful thing. It shows the heart of God. I will dwell among my people. I will not forsake them. So Solomon, verse 14, it says, built the temple... And finished it. And again, notice verse 14, repetitious of verse 9 as well. He built the temple and finished it. I think the Holy Spirit is trying to clearly emphasize to us this reality that Solomon didn't just start the project, he carried it out to completion. He built and he finished. What he started, he carried through to the end. You know, we are notorious as people for beginning things and then never following through with them. Super ambitious. Oh, we're going to do this. I'm going to do that. We're going to. And we start things, and then you know we you know are real excited at the beginning. Then about halfway through, we hit that typical. Gets a little bit challenging, and then we just gradually wear off, and then we just never finish. God finished things. Jesus, when he died on the cross, he said, "It is finished." And say, "I almost did it. I'm glad. I'm glad he finished it. He finished the process." And as God's people, we should, what we start, especially when it's of the things of the Lord. This was a work of the Lord. 
This was God's work, God's ministry. He was doing a project for God. So it says Solomon began, he built, and he finished it. I encourage you, have that heart. When you do things for the Lord, finish what you do for the Lord. Follow through, carry things out. Solomon built and he finished the entire work the Bible wants us to know. It says repetitiously. So verse 14 says he built the temple, finished it, built the inside walls of the temple with cedar boards. From the floor of the temple to the ceiling, he paneled inside with wood. So floor to ceiling was cedar wood, planks of cypress. Verse 16 says he built the, uh, the 20 cubit room at the rear of the temple from floor to ceiling, covered it with cedar boards. And that inner sanctuary at the rear of the temple, verse 16, notice was called the most holy place. Again, the temple building was built basically like a rectangle divided into two parts, one third and the other two thirds of it being the front room. The one third being the back room, just like the tabernacle was. The rear room was always what was called the holy of holies or the most holy place. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God manifested his presence at the mercy seat. And then the front room was the, you know, the front uh, part of the temple sanctuary was where the table of showbread and the golden lampstands and the altar of incense was. So it was always these two rooms. So the most holy place was the front. And, or the back, excuse me, and the front of the temple sanctuary, verse 17 says, was 40 cubits. So 60 foot long was the front holy place, and then 30 foot long was the remainder of the back part of the temple where the most holy place was. And the inside of the temple, verse 18, was carved with ornamental buds and open flowers, and all was cedar. There was no stone to be seen. So notice, there was no rough stone seen from the inside, the wood paneling covered floor to ceiling everywhere over the stone. And he prepared, verse 19, the inner sanctuary and set inside the temple and set the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord there. Again, that you can see that in your drawing there. Remember, just like in the tabernacle, that's where the Ark was with the mercy seat over top. That's where they made atonement for the sins of the nation once a year. That's where the, the Shekinah glory of God, where the presence of God was manifested. And remember, the, the, the high priest alone and only one time a year with the blood of a sacrifice could go back into the Holy of Holies or the most holy place to make atonement there on the ark on the mercy seat for the sins of the people because that was where the presence of God was and only once a year with the blood of a sacrifice could the high priest alone go in there. Verse 20 says the inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long and 20 cubits wide. So again, the most holy place for the holy of holies, the rear room, 30 foot cubed, basically double the size of what the tabernacle was. And he overlaid that, notice, with pure gold and the altar of cedar. So Solomon, verse 21, overlaid the inside of the temple, look at this, with pure gold. Now what this is describing is everything built out in the temple after it was built out and, and paneled with the cedar wood, then the entirety, floor to ceiling, everything inside was overlaid with gold. You know, there are those who have estimated uh, if you took the amount of gold it probably would have took with the dimensions and all this kind of stuff that potentially up to a trillion dollars it would have cost to build the temple of God. God spared no expense at all. But again, do you see the, the reality of this? Can you imagine how gorgeous everything overlaid with gold? The outside, rough exterior, stone, limestone. The inside, beauty, glory, brilliance, gold. Does that sound familiar? Jesus was both fully man and fully God. 
Outwardly, Jesus looked just like every other person. He was a man, rough, normal, natural human exterior. Internally, Jesus was deity. All the glory and the brilliance of God himself being inside the life of Jesus. Again, a beautiful picture like the temple itself. Outwardly rough, inwardly gorgeous and divine, just like Jesus in his humanity and yet his deity and divinity internally. Verse uh, 22 says, The temple overlaid with gold. He also overlaid with gold the entire altar. Now that would be the altar of incense right before the veil that took you back into the rear room where the picture of the prayers of the people were. Verse 23, inside the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim. Now, these cherubim, remember, were angelic beings. These were angelic beings uh, with wings that were extended. So he builds these two cherubim of olive wood, 10 cubits high, so they're 15 foot high, and one wing of the cherub was five cubits. The other was five cubits, so each having a seven and a half foot wing. And look down with me in verse 27. It says, He set the cherubim inside the inner room, and they stretched out their wings so that the wing of one touched the one wall and the wing of the other cherub touched the other wall, and their wings touched each other in the middle in the side of the room. So what this is describing is, remember, the, the ark with the mercy seat itself had cherubim on top of it, pictures of angelic beings, because this is the place of the, the picture of the presence of God and the angels in his midst. And now in the temple, there's these massive cherubim that are covering the entire 30-foot width, each one's wingspan taking up 15 feet from wall to wall, stretched out over the ark there and where the mercy seat was with the smaller cherubim. And of course, this was just intended to be a picture of the, the presence of God, the throne of God, God's presence with angelic beings in the midst of it is what's being portrayed there in the construction of this. It tells us verse 30, and the floor of the temple was overlaid with gold. And so, again, just God wanted it all to be incredibly gorgeous. For the entrance of the inner sanctuary, verse 31, he made doors of olive wood and lentil doorposts, one-fifth of the wall. The doors were of olive wood and carved on them were figures of, notice, verse 32, cherubim and palm trees and open flowers all overlaid with gold. So this describes all the ornamental decorativeness of that you know picture of fruitfulness a picture uh, of you know these kind of things that god wanted represented the flowers the palm trees the you know those kind of things were intended to give a beautiful imagery all this decorative design in them as well as verse 35 so they had carved out cherubim and palm trees with open flowers and so forth down verse 37 says in the fourth year of the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Zib and in the eleventh year in the month of Bull which is in the eighth month the house verse 38 the house was finished in all its details according to all its plans so he was seven years in building it so notice seven years and this is quite a process seven years it took to build the temple of the Lord according to the design here the structure itself and again the, the, the number seven in the Bible is always a, a representation symbolically of completion sometimes people say that seven is the number of perfection that's not true seven is the number of completion it's the number that represents God and the things of God because God is complete there are seven days in a week seven notes in a scale and so again it took seven years to build the house of God to complete it 
until it was finished. And again, quite a process preparing the house of the Lord for seven years to get it ready for God's people to experience worship and the presence of God among them. I look at that and I think to myself, man, think of what they built in seven years. Jesus said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you in my father's house, Remember he said, in my father's house, the true house, are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go prepare a place for you, I will come again that where I am, you may be also. And I think to myself, have they built that in seven years? Can you imagine what the best carpenter has done for you in 2,000 years? If we think that's impressive, Jesus has been building your dwelling place for 2,000 years, custom design. Getting things ready is the perfect carpenter. What an amazing thing to consider and think about. Well, chapter 7, verse 1 says, But Solomon, however, notice, took 13 years to build his own house and finished it. Isn't that interesting? Seven years to build the house of the Lord, 13 years to build his own palace. No explanation needed there. Sounds like human nature, doesn't it? Verse 2 says he built the house of the forest of Lebanon, and this describes now his palace compound is what we're reading about here. The house of the forest of Lebanon, its length was 100 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. Notice it seems quite a bit bigger too. (laughs) His palace is is considerably large uh, where he and all of his uh, many family members and wives are going to live with cedar pillars and cedar beams. It was paneled with cedar above the beams and 40 pillars, 15 to a row, and there were windows with beveled frames in three rows. Tells us, verse 6, he also made the hall of pillars, and its length was 50 cubits, and its width 30 cubits, or uh, again, 45 foot. In front of them, a portico and a canopy. Verse 7, he also made the hall for the throne, the hall of judgment, where he might judge. So this is where he rendered his governmental activity from. And it was paneled with cedar from floor to ceiling. And the house he dwelt in had another court inside the hall of like workmanship. And Solomon also made a house, interesting verse 8, like the hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom he had taken as a wife. So Pharaoh's daughter, one of his wives, uh, she had her own dwelling place right in the compound of the palace of King Solomon. Again, maybe that's part of where some of his marital troubles came from. You know, here's your palace out here and my palace will be over here. And But he built her her own dwelling place, uh, made a house for her, Pharaoh's daughter, where she could dwell at. Uh, verse 9 says, And all these were of costly stones, trimmed with saws inside and out, foundations of the eaves. And the foundation was of costly stones, verse 10 says. Look at the size of some of these stones. Ten cubits by eight cubits, or, and some eight cubits. So again, that's 15 foot. These are major stones. 15 foot long stone. I mean, that is a massive, massive stone they used in these construction processes. Verse 11 and above were costly stones hewn to size and cedar wood and the great court enclosed with three rows And so were the inner court and the house of the Lord and the vestibule of the temple. So verse 13 now picks back up and gives to us some descriptions of some of these furnishings you see in your drawing here. Some of the furnishings that were built around the temple compound. So we'll work through this quickly here just to kind of close up the building of the temple at the end of chapter 7 in one study here. Verse 13 says, Now King Solomon sent and brought to Hurim, or most believe that's a reference to Hiram from Tyre, 
He was the son of a widow from the tribe of Naphtali, which means a Jewish person. And his father was a man of Tyre, so someone from the area of Phoenicia. So he's part Jewish, part Gentile. And he was a bronze worker, and he was filled with wisdom and understanding and skill in working with all kinds of bronze. And he came to King Solomon and did all his work. So interesting, the Bible identifies this man that Solomon contracted, half Jew, half Gentile. And notice he had an incredible aptitude for working with metal and in construction things. This guy may not have been a bookworm, but one thing was true, you don't want a bookworm when you're building the temple and you're building the palace and all kinds of things. And it says here that this man was filled with wisdom and skill in working with all kinds of bronze. You know, it is amazing the capacity that some people have to do the things they do with their hands. I mean, the same way we're impressed with people that are very intellectual and intelligent and, you know, very smart. I mean, it is quite as marvelous as well the people who God has blessed with just a, a true divine ability to have skill in, you know, working and craftsmanship and these kind of things. And again, everybody has their purpose. Uh, and in a time like this, this is what Solomon needed. God's work on this day didn't need a preacher, it needed a craftsman. God needed a craftsman. He needed someone who could build things and create things and you know, use their skills in such a way with wisdom. That was the most valuable individual. It says he came to King Solomon and did all his work for him. And I like that. He comes to the king and he did all his work. Hey, whatever your skill is, whatever your aptitude or your ability is, when you come to the king, your king, the king of kings, do his work. Use your aptitudes, your abilities, your skills, and use them for the work of your king and whatever he would have you to do. Anything can be used to serve God. Verse 15 says he also cast two pillars of bronze. And these pillars, look at the size of them. These two pillars of bronze were 18 cubits high, so 25 foot high, and 12 cubits they measured in circumference, which means 18 foot wide in circumference. So these are massive, 25 foot high, 18 foot in circumference, these two pillars. If you look at your drawings again, in the front you see these two ornamental pillars that were in front of the temple. They have no structural purpose. They weren't holding anything up. They were just two massive pillars that God wanted made of bronze in front of his house. Verse 16 down through verse you know, 21 described the different ornamental designs on these things, how they were built. They were built of bronze, but all the, again, the, the different designs and artistic works on them. Verse 21 tells us that he set up the pillars, and notice they had names. The pillar on the right was called Jachin, or Yachin, and the pillar on the left was called Boaz. Now, here's what's interesting. These two pillars that God wanted right there as you entered into the house of the Lord, one was named Jachin, one was named Boaz. Jachin means he shall establish. Boaz means he shall strengthen. And no doubt God was trying to convey something that as you entered into the house of the Lord, it was within the house of the Lord that God establishes and God strengthens. God establishes our spiritual lives, our spiritual you know, you know, ability to stand strong in the Lord, and God strengthens us in connection to the house of the Lord. A lot of Christians, unfortunately, 
you know, uh, become, you know, very uprooted and, and are, are kind of, you know, all over the place. There's no spiritual traction. You know, they blow here, they blow there. They're not established in the things of the Lord. And the reason why is because they don't consistently go to the house of the Lord. And they wonder why their spiritual life is not established and grounded. And a lot of Christians sometimes become very weak and anemic. They're saved. But they're weak and they're anemic and they're they're living carnal and you know engaging in sin and half in the world and ha- and, and the reason why is because they're neglecting to regularly be at the house of the Lord because it's at the house of the Lord that God establishes our spiritual life. That's how we become established spiritually, and that is where God strengthens our spiritual life through the Word of God and through the worship and the presence of God being in our midst as we're together with him. So again, very interesting that these were pillars that God put right in front of his house when it was created. Verse 23 describes also the sea of cast bronze, which was made. And again, if you look in your drawing here, we'll make this a little easier for you. You see there that laver, that water looked almost like a pool area outside of the temple structure itself. And verse 25 tells us that it stood on 12 oxen, three looking to the north, three to the south, three to the east, and three to the west. So it was like this massive swimming pool that was up on top of the backs of these oxen. And it says, verse 26, that it contained 2,000 baths or about 11,000 gallons of water. And what this was was a place where, remember, when the priests... And the Levites and the spiritual workers came in and they made the sacrifices and the offerings as they came in. And when they went in and out of the temple itself, the actual structure of the temple, they had to wash before they went in and they had to wash when they went back out. And it's a picture of how, no doubt, we all need continual washing and cleansing. The Bible calls the washing and cleansing of the water of the word of God. And how we all need to be regularly being washed in the water of the word that that's important to our spiritual lives, to our worship lives, to our service of the Lord. So they had to do this ceremonial washing as they went in and out. Verse 27 tells us also, and this is different than the tabernacle, which had a, a bronze laver to wash. Now, verse 27 tells us that there were also 10 carts of bronze that had wheels that were moved around the precinct of the temple area And as these were moved around, it tells us that one of the things on those 10 carts, if you glance over to verse 37, again, trying to be merciful to you here with the details. You'll thank me later. Thus he made the 10 carts, and all of them were of the same mold, one measure and one shape, and he made 10 lavers, smaller pools of bronze, and each laver contained about 40 baths, or about 220 gallons, and on each of the 10 carts was a laver and he put five carts on the right side of the house and five on the left side of the house. So no doubt what these were, these carts with smaller little, you know, sort of basins of water, these were used so that they were mobile to be moved around. So again, keep in mind, if you look to the top of the center drawing there that you have, the brazen altar, that's where the sacrifices, the animals were put, where the peace offerings and sin offerings and burnt offerings But as they were slaughtering animals, this was a bloody, messy process. 
that involved, you know, a lot of process of, you know, dismembering, you know, body parts of animals and the bloodshed and all these kind of things and the sprinkling and the use of the blood and pouring out of the blood. So this was a very practical way to be able to wash up and clean up. And, you know, this was kind of your tool cart. So the, the, the priests and the Levites, they move around these carts to be able to do what they had to do in their practical ministry functions and to clean themselves up afterwards as they did this. Verse 40 tells us that Hiram made these labors and finished doing all the work that he was to do for King Solomon for the house of the Lord. Again, you notice those statements the Holy Spirit wants us to see. Hiram, just like Solomon, another servant of the Lord, he finished doing all the work that he was to do for King Solomon. Hey, what is the work that God has assigned you to do? What is the work that your king wants you to be doing and has asked you to do? Be faithful and finish it. Don't leave things incomplete. Don't do things half-heartedly. I don't care if you're making a bulletin, if you're cleaning a building or teaching a class, whatever you do, you're doing it for the king of kings, not just King Solomon. Do it thoroughly. Do it completely. Carry out. Finish the work that the Lord gives you to do. All the work to the degree that you want to honor your king. And Hiram was faithful in doing such a thing. Now verse 41 down through Verse 46 just then describes more of the ornamental things, 400 pomegranates and the different networks and again refers to the different things, the implements of the temple we've already talked about. It reiterates them as a list, the sea and the pots and notice verse 45, the shovels and the bowls. Again, notice all these things, all the practical things that were necessary for the worship system in the temple, but they all mattered to God. Every pot, every shovel was important to God. Verse 46, In the plain of the Jordan, the king cast them in clay molds between Sukkoth and Zartan. And Solomon didn't weigh all the articles because there were so many, the weight of the bronze was not determined. There was so much used, he just couldn't even keep track of all the weight. And thus Solomon had all the furnishings made for the house of the Lord, the altar of gold, the table of gold, which was the showbread, the lampstands, of pure gold, five on the right side and five on the left in the front of the inner sanctuary together with, it says, the flowers and the lamps and the wick trimmers and the basins and trimmers. Now take note, here's a little difference from the tabernacle. When you went into the first room of the temple, there was the table of showbread where the regular bread was changed out, a representation of Jesus being their sustenance, the bread of life and the nourishment of God and the nourishment of God's word. And then on the other side, remember, there was one lampstand, the menorah, the, you know, the, the, the seven you know, stick candle stand that was there. Now the Bible tells us that this has actually been increased in the temple. There's not just one, but it says there there was five on the right and five on the left. So now there's 10 of these perhaps possibly to create additional light there within the temple itself. So again, another change in the temple as compared to the tabernacle itself. Look at verse 51 as it concludes. It says, So all the work that King Solomon had done for the house of the Lord was finished. And then Solomon brought in the things which his father David had dedicated, the silver and the gold and the furnishings, and he put them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. So he completes the process. He now takes all the valuable, precious things, the gold, the silver, 
and those things of great worth and he puts them into the treasuries of the house of the Lord. And again, the Bible tells us in Ephesians 1 that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ in heavenly places. The Bible tells us in Corinthians that we have this treasure in earthen vessels, in these temples, these bodies. And in the same way they put valuable treasures into the house of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, God has put tremendous treasure, valuable things into you and I's eyes. He's put his treasure, his things of great worth in us. He's entrusted with us the the gospel and the gifts of the spirit and the things that have such great value and we have stewardship. These things have been put into our temple to be used as good stewards for our Lord. Let's stand together. Let's pray.